Hey everyone, welcome to the Health Hack Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. And today we are going to cover the key to avoiding pain as you age, using vitamin D to prevent autoimmune disease, uh, the efficacy, or I guess lack of efficacy, of the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, an update on diabetes stats in the U.S., and how meat is being used as the scapegoat for multiple sclerosis. So let's kick it off. All right, yeah, key to avoiding pain, aside from just shooting yourself up with oxy, uh, there was a study done where they looked at 10 years of data, um, and this was specifically in the UK. They looked at uh, around 6,000 individuals over the age of 50. So they're trying to figure out, okay, how, how are these people managing their pain? What's, I guess, leading to pain? Um, and they were looking at how it correlated to activity levels. So they asked them their activity levels over the course of the 10 years, and they also asked them their current physical pain. Um, and this is uh, pain such as like muscle pain, joint pain, bone pain, typical pain that you kind of feel as you age. And what they found, what the correlation here was, is that only high level of physical activities were associated with a reduced risk of suffering these types of pains. Um, I kind of think the opposite. If people are in their 50s and doing high activity, high physical activity things, you'd think that they would have muscle pains from that. It was actually the opposite. They had the least amount of pains. Um, so that was the strongest correlation they found. There was also a few other correlations that are interesting. One is that uh, a low wealth female, being female and being overweight or obese were found to um, increase the risk of these pains. Um, the, the overweight and the obese makes sense. The, the low wealth, I understand the correlation there. Being female is an interesting stat that they found. I don't quite understand, nor did they explain what, why females specifically seem to have a higher risk, but that was the findings here. But the big finding is, is that high level of physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of suffering pain. Um, and you know, aches and pains are something that we've kind of accepted that happens as we age, but there is a way to significantly reduce your risk of that. Uh, the prevalence of pain increased with age um, in this group here, it was 62% of people over the age of 75 report to have this uh, a chronic or persi persisting pain. And, you know, one easy solution, one solution that many people take is just to medicate the pain away. Um, a lot of people are on pain medication as they age throughout their the, the remainder of their life. Um, but pain treatment in elderly age is much different than pain treatment when you're younger. Um, there's, there's a lot more risks involved um, with adverse side effects. Addiction is a high risk as well. So uh, medicating the elderly for pain is high risk, and a lot of doctors try to avoid it. So you don't want to have to rely on that. Um, you don't want to have to rely on medication in any case, but specifically in this case. So it, um, exercise, obviously a healthy diet, but specifically being physically active, throughout the duration of your life, even, even in your aging years, um, very important. Um, only the current stat is that only one in four adults over the age of 65 actually hit the minimum recommended activity levels to maintain health. Um, so that's a very, very small portion, which is why we're seeing so many people in their old age be in a lot of pain. Basically, as you age, 
Um, when you're young, throughout your whole years, try to maintain physical activity. It's extremely important. I mean, like with anything in life, it, it, it's it's not easy or fun in the moment, but in the long run, it pays off with nutrition, with finance, with with physical activity, with relationships. It all takes steady work, and in the end, it will pay off. I think one thing we talked about and what makes me think about why physical higher physical activity would be better uh, is older people that are engaging in just low to moderate physical activity are probably doing very basic things like mm-hmm. walking, yeah, which is good, or maybe swimming, which again is good. But like we talked about in I think one of our first episodes, uh, I, I don't know, we, we mentioned it a couple of years ago about how to how to work out until you're 100, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that was the name yeah. of the episode. And we talked about how it's important to hit all these different areas of physical activity, not just strength, not just cardio, not just balance, but you need to hit on all these different things. There's like 10 different you know, aspects of physical activities. And mm-hmm. you, know, you got to touch on those through different modalities. So I think people that are engaging in high amounts of physical activity are doing different things that probably hit on different, different areas of the body, you know, different things that um, are going to improve their, their health span where mm-hmm. people that have low to moderate probably doing very simple f- physical activities and, and missing some other components that are very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if we mentioned that on a previous episode or if I've just read this, but the two of the most important things for lifespan as you age is strength building and balance, which is two things that people who are physically active when they're older, don't really get that. You know, typically, like you said, they're just, they're walking, they're playing tennis, playing golf, playing these lower activity things that might get your heart rate up a little bit. And it's good that you're physically active, but if you're neglecting strength building and if you're neglecting balance, um, I mean, you can be in, be in some trouble there. So those two specifically are very important as you age. And you see, we talked about this, I think on that episode is, a lot of older people break their hips. Like that's like the beginning yeah. of the end for yeah. people. And exactly. what is that? Why does that happen? Balance and strength. Mm-hmm. They can't handle the side to side, which you don't get if you're right. just walking straight. Um, or they can't hold themselves up if they step on a, you know, step down a step or a ledge mm-hmm. or something. So yeah, um, that's, a, that's interesting. And I think it kind of confirms should be working all these different, different aspects of physical activity, even as we age. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, this one was really interesting. You know, we've talked about vitamin D a lot on this show and in our newsletter, and this was another positive study showing the impact of a continual vitamin D supplementation above and beyond what is recommended. I think the recommended daily intake of vitamin D is like 400 IU a day. Well, this study took twenty, almost 26,000 people. It was like 25,871 people. All of these people were over 50. It was like half women, half men. And they split them up into different groups. One group took vitamin D for 2,000 IU a day, which is like four times the recommended daily amount. Another group took uh, omega-3 for 1,000 milligrams a day. And then there's the placebo group. And they had these people take these supplements for for five years, 5.3 years. Now, this was was a randomized controlled trial technically, but they weren't like administered this in a lab every day. Basically, they were told, hey, take this amount of vitamin D every day. Now, at the end of that five years, they found that uh, they were given a questionnaire 
asking about their compliance, like how often did you actually take these supplements? 93% of people actually responded to that questionnaire, which is pretty good out of 26,000 people, 93% responded and reported that uh, basically 81% of those people took, uh, took their supplements the majority of the time. How accurate that is, I don't know, but the whole goal, the whole goal of that is to see how many people were actually taking their supplements. And it seemed like most of the people complied most of the time. And they confirmed this because they took blood work before and after. And they found that in the vitamin D group, after five years, the that group had 40% higher levels of vitamin D than baseline. And then for the omega-3 group, they had 55% more omega-3 in their blood uh, than baseline compared to the placebo, which for both of those were basically none. Like their, the placebo, their vitamin D or omega-3 didn't change. Basically, that showed that people were consistent. There was a large group of people that were taking their supplements consistently. But the big finding here and why I found this interesting was because looking at the vitamin D arm, at the end of the five years, they found that they had a 22% lower rate of autoimmune conditions compared to, to the placebo group. I think it was like 123 people in the vitamin D group had an autoimmune condition at the end of the five years or developed it over the course of those five years. 155 in the placebo group, placebo group, and they consider that to be statistically significant. Now, the omega-3 group had like a 15% lower rate of autoimmune condition. They said that was not enough to be statistic statistically significant. That 22% may not sound like a lot, but if you're taking, if, if you have an opportunity to, to take a supplement like vitamin D, which is very low risk, low toxic supplement, and you can... One thing you can do to lower your risk of autoimmune disease, why not do it? Now, in terms of like the mechanism, like why vitamin D lowers or lowers the rate of autoimmune disease, not entirely sure. They had some theories, uh, one of them being that the, when the vitamin D enters the nucleus of the cell, it binds to the vitamin D receptors and that regulates an array of genes, many of which are involved in uh, inflammation and immune response. So one example of that is that vitamin D seems to inhibit the expression of uh, inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6, which stimulates T helper cells, which tends to be overactive in autoimmune patients. So if you can reduce that inflammation, reduce the that overactive immune cells, then you reduce the rate of uh, or the risk of autoimmune disease. And so they basically think that vitamin D helps the immune system distinguish between what is you, like what is your own body tissue and what is a outsize, outside threat. And that's the whole problem with autoimmune condition. It's autoimmune. You're, it's attacking yourself. And they think that the way vitamin D works is it, it helps, it, it helps your body identify what's you and what's not you. So I thought that was pretty cool. Autoimmune diseases have uh, continued to increase over the course of the past several years. My wife has MS which makes me very interested in, in autoimmune conditions. And one important thing about this is that it was looking at prevention specifically. So nobody in the group, to their knowledge, had an autoimmune condition at the beginning. And they don't know how vitamin D would impact those with already existing autoimmune conditions, but it seems to be a good low-risk way to reduce your risk of developing an, an autoimmune condition. So it's a good, safe prevention method. Yeah, and that's, I mean, we know of many other 
benefits of having sufficient vitamin D levels. So this is just adds to the list of, of multiple things we already know. And there's tons of people out there. I, I think we did an episode specifically on vitamin D, um, talking about how many people are insufficient or desufficient with the vitamin D. And it's quite a large percentage of the population who don't have adequate levels, especially now we're in the winter. So, you know, half the country really doesn't see the sun for half the year. Uh, and during those periods, it's, it's essential that you get adequate vitamin D, which the only way to do that is during these winter months is through supplementation. So yeah, yep. interesting study and, um, take, take your vitamin D. All right. Uh, the next story that we have for you is a somewhat controversial study that came out, uh, this past week. And interestingly, when, when I, so I, I stumbled across the study and then I was like, I went back to like Google it to, to find other write-ups on it. And there was like no, no mainstream news outlet had written anything on this. Like I looked on, like I, I did this on a, on a Google search. I, I, I looked at like the first three pages, no mainstream, um, outlet did a story on it. And I, I finally found one that Fox News did, but like it was nowhere in, in the Google's search. Like they were the one of the few people who did write a story on it and it was nowhere in the Google search. So very interesting. I, mm. I should have looked on DuckDuckGo because I wonder where yeah, that would have I always get different it. results when I do that. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it's hard to find stuff on this surprisingly because it's a very shocking study. But it was out of Johns Hopkins University. It was an economist there looked at many different studies. He ended up, it was a meta-analysis. He, I think it started with like a thousand studies and he picked the highest quality of those studies. So it ended up with 34 studies to see how effective lockdown restrictions were in 2020. And um, as we know, like the, the, it started, the lockdown started with, you know, two weeks to stop the spread, which turned into what we are here now, almost two years in, and there still are some restrictions in place. Um, and what they found, the effectiveness of it is in total, the combined impact reduced deaths by 0.2%, a very small number. Um, and then you, it, it, the study broke it down kind of by type of restrictions. So there's the stay at home orders. So that, spe that specific restriction reduced deaths by 2.9%. School closures specifically reduced deaths by 4.4%. Business closures, 10.6%. Border closures, 0.1%. So collectively, if you take all of that into account, the total impact, lockdown impact, reduced deaths by 0.2%. And I believe this was for the Americas and the UK, I believe is specifically where this was, the study was conducted. Um, so pretty shockingly low numbers, essentially, uh, essentially zero impact. I mean, zero, it's not 2%, that's 0.2%, um, reduced reductions in deaths. Um, now the report did not examine why specifically these restrictions were being, um, were, were ineffective, but two explanations that they kind of threw out there as potential possibilities is number one, when you isolate people to their homes, like, like they did, uh, you have a much higher likelihood of spreading a higher viral load to the people around you. So like, like let's say a family of six, one person has COVID and they're, they're, you know, they're not going anywhere. You're not going to school. You're not going to business. You're staying home and everybody else is staying home. It's a 
very high likelihood that those other five family members get sick because you're all in this small area for 24 hours a day. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason is that because of closing certain retail businesses, mo anything non-essential was closed for quite a, quite a bit of time. So only essential businesses were closed, meaning everybody no longer could go to non-essential businesses. Everybody was going to an essential business. So all of a sudden, you have people going just to the Meyer or Walmart in your area. Everybody's flocking to that one store because that's the only store that's open because it's the only essential store near you. So again, you're flooding a bunch of people into one area, much higher, higher viral load in one area, whereas before it was spread out. So those are kind of two theories as to why these restrictions um, were appeared to be ineffective based upon the study. And I just want to end with two quick disclaimers here. Um, this study has not yet been peer reviewed. Um, that doesn't mean it's not accurate. That doesn't mean it is wrong. It means that someone else still needs to take a look at it um, and validate these results. Um, I guess usually in these cases, there's not a significant change. So it's likely that it will be around these numbers. It could change. It could be different than these numbers. Who knows? But just to put that disclaimer out there, it's not peer reviewed. If there are significant changes to this, we'll we'll cover that. But as of now, um, we'll see we'll see what happens once it does get peer reviewed. Second thing is they mentioned this in the study. They they're they're completely transparent about this. But to make this more an accurate representation of the of the typical lockdown restriction, they excluded extreme lockdown scenarios, things seen in like uh, New Zealand and Australia, where essentially you were forced literally in your home and nowhere else. Like you could not leave your house. Um, these were extremely strict regulations and most of the world was not this strict. Um, so they excluded those kind of outliers like New Zealand and Australia, where they had the super strict restrictions to prevent skewing the results. So two disclaimers, but all in all, some very interesting uh, outcomes here. Yeah, and I think there is like a couple ways you can look at this, like with vaccines, with, uh, you know, anytime you look at like death mortality, I think it's important to group it by, you know, category or by risk type. So mm -hmm. like stay at home orders probably did you know, reduce deaths for, uh, you know, people that were like older, you know, immune compromised, high risk, but like maybe for the average person probably didn't really impact anyone. And that's kind of one side of it. Like, I don't know how you captured that, like how you, I don't, I don't even know how you would go about looking at that data. Who did this benefit and who did it not? Or did it even benefit those who are at higher risk, which is really like what we were trying to do because we knew this affected a certain per percent of the population at a greater rate. Mm -hmm. Were those people protected through these measures? I don't know. Yeah. And well, then, I guess one thing we can kind of mm -hmm. see there, I mean, we kind of can get a rough uh, generalization by looking at the difference between school closures and business closures. School closures, you know you're looking at 18 age, ages 18 and younger. That's for that's what that group entails. And then there's business closures, which typically includes ages 18 and up. Where it, So the school closure reduced, reduced deaths by 4.4%. Business closures reduced by 10.6%. Um, meaning the younger group who had these restrictions were were less affected by it. 
I mean, that's a broad generalization, but it's a stat that we have. Yeah, that's a good point. Another thing is it's almost too early to do this study because we don't know the impact, the the flip side of the business closures, school closures, stay-at-home orders. I mean, suicide, rate, suicide rates have gone yeah. up. Um, what I'm going to get to in a little bit is uh, rates of um, diabetes deaths has gone up. There are other things that have changed that are, were probably not accounted for in this study and that we may not see the long-term impacts for 10 years. I mean, just right. look at the, yeah. the economic impact. I mean, how do you quantify that in terms of lives? And um, it'll probably be a while before before we see that. And uh, this study, will, another study will probably be done, I, I imagine, down the road to look at that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, plenty will be. Uh, but that's a good segue into our next story, which is, again, one that was really not covered in the uh, the mainstream media. And that is uh, this story that came out by, by Reuters is like the one that re- reported on it. Um, U.S. diabetes deaths have exceeded 100,000 for the second straight year. So back in 2019, U.S. diabetes deaths were at 87,000. It went up 17% from that in 2020, and then in 2021, increased another 15%. Or Sorry, not another 15%, just 15% compared to 2019 levels. So basically, we're at you know 15 to 17% where we were in 2019, which is a, a huge jump in just a year. Compare this to like the 1970s, where the diabetes um, rate, the prevalence of diabetes was like 5.3% in 1970s and then in 2018 went up to 14.3 percent and then you know now it's we're we're consistently exceeding 100,000 diabetes deaths per year most of those are type 2 type 1 is is a if you know anyone with type 1 diabetes it's awful but that's a much lower it's a small percentage of the people that have diabetes type 1 is not preventable there's some debate on that, but in general, it's like really it's, you can't do much with that. You got to take insulin consistently. But with type two, it's generally preventable. And that's where most of these deaths come from. And the pandemic has only exacerbated these deaths. I mean, people are staying at home more. They're exercising less. You know, with a lot of gym closures, people are eating more junk food. It was just easier the past two years to just sit at home and, and do nothing. You're moving less. And we've seen a direct, you know, direct increase in diabetes deaths. And then there's like the economic cost of this. Uh, the back in 2017, which I know this number has increased since then, direct medical costs for diabetes were estim- estimated to be 237 billion. And that was in 2017. Rates were like you know 20% lower, and it just continues to be an impact, obviously on the health of the American people, but on on like the the economy as well. The, the healthcare system, I think right now, or as of like 2020, like one in 10 people, 34 million Americans, one in 10 have diabetes and 88 million Americans, which is like one in three Americans have pre-diabetes. So it is not headed in a good direction. And I think this needs to get some attention. Um, I think uh, we've talked about this before. I think purely knowledge is not going to change this just telling people you need to eat healthier and exercise is not going to do it we need a shift in our healthcare system i mean a lot of people have uh like chris kresser has been big on this on health coaching like doctors should be able to v- provide 
uh, patients with a an advocate, somebody that a coach, a a uh, an accountability partner, somebody that can like actually help them with behavior change. And that's the big problem, I think, is people struggle to to make change to behavior because it's hard, especially when it comes to diet. But we just keep like trying to throw information at people. Like if you just do this, it'll it'll change. Which and now we're even getting to a point where that is becoming offensive to just even acknowledge that that you know you need to lose weight i don't know if you've seen on um social media but there are these cards now that are going around where people who are overweight can hand this to their doctor and it says please don't weigh me um it's uncomfortable for you to tell me my weight um it's fat phobic all that stuff you go look this up it's it's really fascinating and it's 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 a it's not it's not headed in a good direction. I think it I think it's going to hurt people more than it helps people. I think there's a fine line with that, but um, based on these stats, it's 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 not looking good. Yeah, if you look at the top leading causes of death in the U.S. for the past five years, what's interesting is looking at types of deaths that um, are preventable and ones that aren't preventable. So generally, cancer is so unknown, but I mean generally, you it's hard to tell what causes cancer cancer deaths has has remained relatively flat for the past five years same with influenza it's relatively not preventable it's remained pretty steady flat over the past five years then you look at the things that we know are preventable like heart disease stroke diabetes all of those have increased over the past five years um and our knowledge of all these things have has also increased Uh, we know what's good and bad for us but yet these causes of deaths continue to climb um, and it's really, it's really bizarre. We know, we, we know now more than we ever have yet. We're on more unhealthy than we've ever been before. Right. I hope I, and I, I thought I was really hoping that this pandemic would, would shift, would give, mm-hmm. would help, would encourage a shift since we know that, you know, who it impacts the worst, there'd be an opportunity for people to, to get healthy. But even today, the powers that be still refuse to acknowledge the importance of health changes in mm-hmm. um covid severity in in reducing covid severity so yeah i don't know i think it's just you know if you know people lead you know lead by example encourage uh, obviously like goes without saying but like you know your self-worth obviously is not dependent on your weight but you can live better and feel better and do the things you like more if you're in better shape so mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, encourage and, and lead by example. I think that's all we can do. So you've probably seen in the news lately that Joe Rogan is on the uh, cancellation list. He's on the chopping block for alleged COVID misinformation, alleged racism. But one thing that's not being talked about that, you know, I think is the real crime is he has not pushed element on his listeners. You know, he's at, he's advertised for Athletic Greens, for Black Rifle Coffee Company. But you listen to his ads you know, it's, there's no element. There's no push for the perfect balance of electrolytes, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. And it's a crime, you know. And for that, we are going to be pulling our podcast off Spotify in protest of, uh, of Joe Rogan um, because he is not a Element affiliate. And until he starts advertising for Element, we will be pulling our podcast off Spotify Hopefully word gets out and more people can be hydrated properly. If you want to get some for yourself, you can get a sample pack. You go to drinklmt.com slash health hacked. Gators today, lots of good flavors. We love it. I drink it daily. 
perfect workout fuel. Um, yeah, get it today. Drinklmnt.com slash health hacked. All right, that is a wrap on the main headlines of the week. Um, we're going to close out with a final story here, the fail of the week. So Andy, what do you have for us? I, this was sent to me by a friend. And it basically was saying that meat causes or uh, meat promotes the progression of multiple sclerosis, MS. It's an autoimmune condition. My wife has it, which is why um, this was so interesting to me. MS is where the immune system basically attacks the protective covering of the nerves in the brain and spinal cord. Uh, it's called myelin. It's this myelin sheath around the nerves and the immune system attacks that, which as you can suspect that it's not good. And so what this study did is they took people, they took a group of people with MS. It was only 49 people, 24 who had MS, 25 who were healthy. And at the beginning of the study, they assessed their diet by looking at just four days. They said, fill out this food diary for four days at the beginning of the six months. And they said, then continue to eat that for six months, which already just seems like a really kind of unrealistic expectation. Uh, by t taking just four days out of the month, it was like two weekdays and two weekend days. And then they said, continue to eat that for six months. And they basically assumed that they ate that for six months. And then they took stool and blood samples at the beginning of the six months, at the end of the six months. And they found that those with MS generally had higher meat intake and that those with MS also had a decreased microbe in the gut that is responsible for digesting carbohydrates, meaning that uh, those beneficial bacteria that helps digest carbohydrates are lacking in those with MS slash those that eat more meat. Those people also had increased T helper 17 immune cells, which can enhance autoimmunity, make the autoimmune condition worse. They had less abundance of bacteria that produced um, butyrate, which is a, a short chain fatty acid that can actually be helpful in protecting the myelin, which is very important for MS. And then, as you would expect, these people also had a greater abundance of, of uh, meat-associated blood metabolites, so uh, metabolites associated with meat consumption, which is not a surprise if they're eating more meat. So basically, they say, all right, these are the people with MS. They have all these properties, and they eat more meat. Therefore, you know, meat is the issue here. And what they, what the real problem here is the way that they assess diet, I think, was very poor, but whatever, let's just say that it was accurate what all these people ate. They didn't distinguish between diet quality. They really just kind of pulled out meat and made that the, the scapegoat here. So if somebody has a, a diet full of junk food, sugar, vegetable oils, and, and the meat comes from like know, McDonald's or, or fast food, that their gut composition is going to look very different from someone who eats meat, but also eats tons of vegetables and fermented foods and less processed foods. But they didn't look at that. They didn't pull out like, what else are they eating? Like what, what about sugar consumption or vegetable oil consumption? Like what else are they eating? They basically just saw an increased consumption of meat in these people and associated all these things with me the meat consumption and basically identified meat as being the culprit here. And, um, I have a big problem with this because there has been research done on, Eat, how eating a whole foods diet, including meats, red meats and organ meats, along with vegetables and, and uh, fermented foods, can actually like, reduce the progression of MS. My, my wife has direct experience with this through something called the uh, the Walls Protocol. It's a, it's a meat and vegetable heavy diet. It's, it's just whole foods and fermented foods, all things that help support the gut 
and her and thousands of other people with MS have had uh, success with this. Also, it was demonstrated in a controlled trial. So it's just not really fair to pull out meat um, and and put that as the culprit here. And I'm, I'm afraid that what what someone might do, someone with MS might read these articles and you read the articles and they're all clickbaity, like meat heavy diets have a link to MS. People are going to think oh, I can keep eating what I'm eating. But if I remove MS, if I remove meat, that'll help my MS, which would just be an absolute disaster for somebody that's eating junk food. And then they take out probably the only nutrient dense part of their diet and then remove that. Um, that's going to be worse for their, their MS progression. But you know, this gets clicks. So that's kind of what was shown here. And, um, wanted to push back a little against that, even though I know not many people listening to this have MS, but you might know someone with MS and, um, just yeah, be aware of this one. All right, let's uh, wrap things up here with our plug of the week. Um, a little recommendation for something you guys can check out, something we're finding interesting over the past few weeks, past few months. Um, I'll kick us off. And my plug is Marcus Philly. He is a former CrossFit athlete, but he now kind of has in a, sort of strayed from the typical CrossFit workouts he has his own program called um, persist so he does like basically online programming so you can get an app and, and follow his programming so he really kind of follows the the traditional crossfit template but he changes out a lot of things to make it more as, to to be a, a lifestyle rather than just something that you can only do in your 20s and 30s before every bone in your body is aching it's something that's meant to for, for longevity whether in your 20s or in your 70s this is a program you can do there's like four different tracks so you just pay like a monthly fee but you get access to all four tracks and whether you have no equipment at all or whether you have all of the equipment it's it's basically catered to whatever you have but it's it's a really great programming it takes into a lot of um we, i think we mentioned this last week the knees over toes guy so if you have knee problems he has a lot of stuff around that um just excellent programming so Check out his, he has a lot on Instagram, Marcus Philly, YouTube channel, and then his programming is uh, called Persist. Yeah, it's good stuff. Dad and I actually just did one last night, which is the first time oh, I've nice. done that. And it's the first time I've done a CrossFit workout in a while because I've just been doing like insanity and, you know, knee therapy stuff. And uh, yeah, my I mean, my knees felt great, but I still got a great workout in. It's, uh, it's really awesome. Um, definitely recommend checking him out. My plug of the week is for a YouTube channel slash social media guy. Uh, his name is Jack Rustin. Um, I think his social media handle is Rustin's Boneyard. That's R-U-S-T-O-N, Rustin's Boneyard. He is a uh, low-carb advocate, I mean, carnivore-ish. Uh, he's got a ton of great recipes and little um, like tutorials on his YouTube channel, mostly they're um, like entrees, but he has a couple desserts in there, which are really good, all like low carb, high quality foods. And he kind of walks you through how to do it. And he's got an awesome British accent. So he's worth watching even just for that. So check it out. Rustin's Boneyard check him on Instagram and YouTube. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I made, I think he had a carnivore shepherd's pie that I made of his I added in, I think, a little bit of potato, so it wasn't quite carnivore for me, but it was it was excellent. It was something I never would have thought to make. You basically, like, I don't know, whisk a bunch of eggs and then pour it over some meat, and it makes this, like, foamy, like, 
crunchy pie thing. I don't know how to describe it. It's incredible. So I think that's one of his um, more famous recipes. So check that out. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for tuning in this week. Hope you guys enjoy your week and we'll be back with another episode. 